Thank you for visiting Crosslink Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. Let's start this morning by saying a couple of things. Easter celebration is not a celebration of Christianity. Easter is not a celebration of uh, the things that Jesus said. Easter is really, while Jesus is certainly a part of it, it, Easter is not a celebration of Jesus per se. Easter is the celebration of of a specific event in time. It's a, it's, a, it's a moment that happened that changed everything. That's what Easter is. In fact, what has happened to Easter is kind of what's happened to 4th of July. You know, 4th of July comes around, and 4th of July has become about getting time off work and having a picnic, um, you know, time around the pool or whatever it is, going to the lake or whatever it is that you and your family do, camping, you know, it's about the little sparkly sticks for the kids and, and red, white, and blue um, bunting and, and uh, sales, you know, th- at the different stores. That's what 4th of July has come to be about. We don't oftentimes, in fact, I've, I venture to say that this 4th of July, it could come and go and no one will talk to you uh, about the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which is really what the 4th of July celebrates, but we don't talk about that, right? It's about everything else. Well, Easter has kind of come to be that kind of thing. Um, you know, Easter has kind of come to be more about the sales and more about the dress or the hat or, or um, for the kids, a lot of times for Easter bunnies and, you know, candy and stuff like that. Easter's come to be a, about a lot of different things and not necessarily about the one event that has changed everything for us. Um, you know, different churches celebrate Easter different ways and make different things of it. I know of one big church that yesterday they had a they had a, a, an egg drop, is what they called it, and they dropped helico- uh, eggs out of a helicopter for the kids to go find. We're just hoping they were plastic because it could be, you know, catastrophic if those eggs were not, you know, if they were the regular kind. But, uh, you know, it's, it, Easter, we, we do a lot of different things around Easter, and I'm not saying that those things are necessarily bad. I'm not saying that what you did for your kids last night and get all that stuff ready, that's not bad. That's not bad. But it's easy in the process of doing all that to lose Easter, right? It's easy to lose that event. It's easy to lose that, that one singular moment in history when everything changed. And um, so Easter has become this day of celebration, but, but Easter, it, 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 again, we're going to drill down today into this one specific event um, because without that event, there is no Christianity. Without that event, uh, there is no, the, the church doesn't get its start. Without the resurrection of Jesus, that we, we wouldn't be here today uh, as a group of people who've come to celebrate what we've come to celebrate. We wouldn't know about any of this stuff. You know, we wouldn't know about Jesus dying on the cross, and we wouldn't know about disciples or, or anything like that. Um, so today, what I want to do is, is pretty straightforward. I don't think that today's going to be a real departure for any of you who've been coming for a, a while. If you're a guest, this is what I would say. I have a lot of people walk up to me after church one of the things that happens at this church is we have a lot of people that come to this church that have not grown up in church. And, and so they don't know the stories, and, and we try really hard around here to not talk in such a way to assume that everybody knows everything that we know. I don't use specific words um, simply because I don't want to confuse people or make people think, well, I don't know the lingo, so I, you know, I don't belong and I don't, I'm not a part of things. So we, don't, we talk a little differently. We talk 
really we talk more like normal people around here. And we try to make it as, as easily, uh, easy to understand things as we can. But I still have people walk up to me and say, Brett, you know when you were talking about Jonah and you said we all knew the story of Jonah? Well, I don't know the story of Jonah because I didn't grow up in church. And there are people who would say things like, well, I've heard about Noah, but I've never heard the story from Scripture of Noah. And, and it's true that you may have heard that Easter, in some way, there's some religious thing, and it's about the resurrection of Jesus in some way, but, but you've never had anybody really sit you down and read the resurrection story for you. So what we're going to do this morning is, is I'm just going to pretty much uh, read this story of the resurrection, and in between that, I'm going to sprinkle in some facts and some, some things to just kind of highlight, but most of what we're going to do this morning is really just going to be a revisit of some very old, familiar scripture for us. And, uh, and I think that you'll, you'll see that it's very meaningful. This is a, a story that is so powerful, in fact, that some have, have set out in an effort to discredit the resurrection. They, they've been converted by it. This story is so powerful that people, much smarter people than me, have set out to say, that to prove that the resurrection didn't exist, didn't happen, couldn't have happened, and as they have examined the facts and as they have examined this story, they've come back and they've been converted by the very thing they set out to discredit in the first place. Some people who are, are quite accomplished in the liter, liter, literature field, I wanted to say literary, I knew that wasn't right, in the, in the field of literature have examined this story, and what they've come back and said is, this is not written like a storybook story. This isn't written like a comic book thing. This isn't some kind of fairy tale thing. They come back and they say there's way too much detail in this. They're, they're, this was written by several different guys that have given their own accounts, and some of them are eyewitness, and some of them are what other people heard and what they've talked about. And what they've come back and said, these people in the, liter- in the field of literature have come back and said is, this is too realistic to just dismiss out of hand. I mean, there's got to be something to this. And so some really famous people have taken a look at this and been convinced I hope if you're sitting on the fence this morning that after you hear this, you come away and you say with the rest of us, he is risen. That's where we're going this morning. Um, You know, this would be a better story, I think, (laughs) not to correct you, God, but but, um, (laughs) what you're going to find is that if, if you had set out to write this story, you may have written it differently. Because when you read this story, one of the things you find is that there are no heroes in this story. No, no one stands out in this story as some you know, great person of faith where you would say, wow, look at them. I, I want to be just like them. It, it doesn't come across that way. As a matter of fact, the followers, none of the followers expected a resurrection. Now, one of the things you're going to see this morning is that as these guys and ladies come to the, cro- the resurrection, the tomb, they, they, they are a little dumbfounded by what they find. They, they were not expecting what they found. This would be a much better story if it went a little something like this. If the disciples knew that when, when they crucified Jesus on the cross, they knew that Jesus had said he was going to raise on the third day. And so the disciples got together with all the people who followed Jesus, and they huddled around the tomb on the third day. And as the time drew near, they were all gathered around. And when it came the, the appointed time, they started to count down ten. Nine, eight, and the earth started to shake. Seven, six, five. And the guards ran away from the tomb in fear for what was about to happen. Four, three, two, and the seal was broken. One. I mean, wouldn't it be great if that's how it went? 
But that's not how this story goes. That's not how it happens at all. I mean, you know, this, this thing is not written like some comic book thing where, you know, here I come to save the day. It's not, it's not something like that. It, it's, it's, it, it does not unfold that way. What a great story it would be if it happened that way. We'd have fun with it. But what you find is that when they crucified Jesus and they put him in the tomb, everybody who saw that happen went home. They went home. They didn't huddle around the tomb. They didn't wait for Jesus to raise from the dead. Everybody that saw that happen went home. There are no heroes. There are no extraordinary women of faith. There are no extraordinary men of faith who rise up and are the, the beacon of and some example of what we're supposed to be as Christians. You don't get that with the resurrection of Jesus. Once he died, they assumed that he would stay dead. Even though they'd seen the miracles, even though they'd heard Jesus and all the teachings of Jesus, they didn't stick around the tomb. They all went home. As far as they were concerned, there would be no church, there would be no Christianity. He was just another wannabe Messiah. That, that's what was written, and whoever wrote this did not write Peter as some grand hero in the story. Andrew is not in this story is not some wonderful hero, some uh, great beacon of faith for us. It doesn't unfold that way. One of the things that makes this story so amazing is that uh, this is a story about people who lost faith and lost hope, and maybe that's where you are today. And maybe God has brought you here for this specific time and this specific purpose. I do believe that that happened in the first service with someone this morning who, who maybe it's you today, that you've come and you're just a little lost and you're a little fuzzy and you're a little, it's a little rattling around in your head and you're just not quite sure you got everything nailed down. Maybe today is the day you can nail some of that stuff down. I'm going to read to you the story from Luke chapter 23 and 24. If you have your Bible, take it out, open it up to Luke 23 and 24. If you have a pen, you may want to have it handy because we'll circle a word or two and I'll try and highlight some things for you. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put everything up on the wall and, it, and it'll be fine. But I encourage you to bring your Bible. It's a, more of an interactive experience if you do that. And that's um, just a good practice to get into. Luke chapter 23 verse 50 is where we're going to start. Verse 50. Our story begins right after the crucifixion, and here's what happens. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man. Now, here's a guy who's a part of this Jewish religious system that has turned Jesus over and had him crucified. Um, this is a, a special guy. He was sort of a secret follower of Jesus. Nobody really knew that. Um, we learn some of that from another book, verse 51, who had not consented to their decision and action. In other words, he was against the crucifixion. He, he did not give his approval to that. It wasn't something that he uh, thought should happen. He came from Ju uh, the Judean town of Arimathea. Sometimes he is referred to as Joseph of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. I love that. If you have a pen, you want to circle that. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. This is a guy who, who had been saying to himself, God is going to send us a Messiah. God is going to, after 400 years of silence, finally God has sent us the guy that is going to change everything for us. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and now finally this guy has showed up. And so here's a guy who has not given up hope, and when Jesus shows up on the scene, he says to himself, hey, maybe this is the guy that we've been looking for for all this time. Going to Pilate, verse 52, 
Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Now, this tells us something about this guy, because you just didn't get an audience with Pilate. You didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, I think I'm going to go and check on Pilate this morning and see how he's doing. It didn't happen that way. For him to get an audience with Pilate tells us he had a certain level of juice. There was a certain power level that he had attained that he could even talk to Pilate tells us he's a special man. So he goes to see Pilate, verse 53. He's going to ask for the body of Jesus. Verse 53, then he took it down, Joseph and his friends or maybe his servants because he's probably a fairly wealthy guy, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock one in which no one had yet been laid. This was a brand new tomb. It was cut out of rock. Uh, Only wealthy people were were, uh, buried this way, okay? Um, Most of us in this room wouldn't enjoy such a luxury back in the time of Christ. If we uh, had died, they wouldn't do this for us. This was the way Jesus was going to be buried in this uh, tomb was was a a special thing for special people, or at least in the culture, the way they said it. Um, This was for the wealthy people. So Joseph gets the body of Jesus, wraps it in a linen cloth. He's going to lay it in the tomb. Now, what you need to understand about burial in the first century is that you would take the body and you would would wash it completely. And then you would begin to apply different um, fragrances and spices, and you would kind of knead those in somewhat there would be oils that they would use it would have a fragrance to them you would treat the body with all these fragrances and and oils and and spices and then when you were done with that you wrap the body in a cloth just as as has been described here Uh, oftentimes the cloth has even been saturated with these oils so that it would have a preservative effect to it and there'd be fragrance involved it was just a then you would place that body in the tomb After you've treated it and washed it and done all that, you'd put it in the tomb. But there's a problem, and the problem is that this is the day before Passover, and they're in a hurry. They've got to get the body off the cross. They've got to get it in the tomb and get it taken care of because the sun's going down, and when the sun goes down, it's Sabbath, it's a special day, it's Passover's coming, and and it's just, um, they've got to get this done in in a real hurry. And so that's the problem, And, and, you know, Add to that, generally, women are the ones who would do this work, and now this work has been assumed by men. And automatically, all the women in the room are going, oh, great. Great. You know, this is a disaster waiting to happen. This is, a, this is, this is women's work. Usually, this is something we do. The guys are going to come along, and boy, are they going to mess this up. And so, this is being done by a bunch of guys, so they don't prepare the body the normal way that the body would be prepared. They're not washing it down. They aren't applying spices the way they're supposed to. They basically, in a hurry, wrap the body in a cloth, and, and they're going to put it in the tomb. And, and, you know, this is not the way women would do it. And the ladies at this point are just kind of shaking their heads saying, typical, just typical. And these ladies, you know, probably watching saying, well, the men didn't do it right. They just put this burial cloth around Jesus. They, they laid him in the tomb. They buried him real quick. Um, they were in a hurry because the sun was getting ready to go down. Verse 54, it was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. So understand, you have this really big day crushing down on these guys. It's a, it's a big day, and it's, it, when the sun goes down, you stop working, and you, you have these observances. And, and so this has all got to be done pretty chop-chop. 
And the reason they call it Preparation Day is because before this big day, there are, if you, like if you needed gas in the car, you would do it on this day. And if you need groceries, this is the day you're going to do that. You've got to feed the camel or whatever it is you're going to do on this day. You're going to do it on Preparation Day because once Passover gets there, you're not going to do anything else. You're, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to take it easy. And so there's this sort of a hurried mentality among the guys who are attending to the body of Jesus, and so they're trying to get all this done before the sun goes down. Verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. There's a group of women, and they see him hurriedly taken off the cross. They see him draped in a burial cloth. They see him put in a tomb, and they're thinking, that's not right. That's not how you do it. And if you listen real close, you can almost hear him going. <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, they're, they're watching this and they're thinking, oh, man, they're, they're messing it up. They don't know what they're doing. These women have accompanied Joseph to the tomb. They know where the tomb is. They see that Jesus has been placed in this tomb. And Joseph and the guys go ahead and they seal the tomb and they leave. Now, I do this every Easter, but it's, it's important that we do this because some people don't understand this. Let me describe for you the way a tomb would be arranged and what a tomb would have looked like. Think of a, of a kind of a wall of rock, and someone goes in and starts to cut out, hollow out. You know if you, when you were a kid and you made a, uh, a big snow hill and then you went in and made an igloo? That's kind of what they did with, the, with this rock. They would cut it out. It would take a long time. A lot of hard work. They would cut this thing out. They have a little hole in there where you could crawl through. On the inside, there would be some slabs that had been built up. That would be where they would lay the body to prepare it for burial in the wall around this tomb because generally you wouldn't just have one person. If you're going to go to all that trouble, you'd put several people in there. They would have holes in the wall, and once the body had been properly prepared, then they would put the body back into the wall. But, But... in this case, they're going to lay the body of Jesus out on one of these preparation tables, and then they're going to seal it up with the rock. Now, when you hear about the stone has been rolled away from the tomb, typically most people in their mind think big, huge, boulder rock like you see in old westerns, right? Is that what you think? You think big, huge rock that you could roll into place. Well, that's not what this thing looked like. Think of a, at most of our houses, we have a sliding glass door somewhere, right? And the, the, the door sits down in a trough and slides in that um, channel in that sliding glass door. And that's how the door works. Well, they would have put a channel like that in front of the, the, the opening to the tomb. And then the, the rock would not have looked like a boulder. It would have been more like, um, think BC Comics, the wheel, when the guy's chiseling the wheel. Think something like that, maybe five inches, six inches thick, maybe five feet in diameter, and it would sit then in this trough that was just a little wider than the rock, and, and the, the channel has been cut on an incline. They would sit the rock in there, they would roll it back up into place, chalk it so that it wouldn't move down, and it would be open then for people to come and go inside because it wasn't being used yet. So these guys have gone in, they've laid the body of Jesus in the tomb, they've unchalked the rock and the stone has now rolled into place and there would have been like a little hollowed out section so that it kind of locked itself in. And that's what these people have, that's what the ladies have just watched happen when the men have laid the body of Jesus to rest in this tomb. So that's, that's a description of the, 
of the tomb. And so they sealed it so they would know if somebody has tampered with it and, and messed with the body or tried to steal the body. Um, and, and, and in particular, we know from other Gospels that um, the, the people who had Jesus killed went to the, the Roman government and said, look, this guy when he was alive was talking about raising from the dead on the third day. And so it's quite possible that his disciples are going to try and steal the body to make it look like he rose on the third day. So what we need you to do is we need you to send a guard and we need you to guard the tomb because it's possible that they're going to steal the body and then they're going to say that he rose from the dead and then we're going to have this problem all over again. So they do. They send some guards out uh, stationed at the tomb and, and so that's what happens. So these women see all this take place and they're distraught because you know, they're, they're not going to be able to give Jesus the kind of burial that they think he deserves, and, and uh, that's why they do what they do next. They've watched all this happen, and then look what happens next. Verse 56, then they went home. They didn't stand outside waiting for a resurrection. They didn't stand outside and look at each other and say, you know, he said he was going to raise from the dead, and I'm just going to stand right here until it happens. It's not what happened. They put the body of Jesus in a tomb, and the ladies went home, and everybody went home. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes. Now, why did they prepare spices and perfumes? They prepared spices and perfumes because the body of Jesus was dead, and they assumed it was going to stay dead for the rest of their lives. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So Friday night, they stay up as late as they're allowed preparing. They work as late as they're allowed to try and get the spices and all the oils and all the stuff ready. They're going to endure the the day of Passover, and then at first light on Sunday, they are going to sprint with all their stuff to go try and get to the body of Jesus, to try and, and in some way dignify this death of this man that they love so much. And so they wait the entire day. The sun goes down, and all through the night they're waiting. And then we read, on the first day of the week, this is chapter 24 now, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. And the picture we get is that, that, that they, they've waited up almost seemingly all night, and they've gotten up early, and they're watching off in the distance the sunrise. They can't wait to see first light because when they see first light, that's their cue. They can leave. See, they're, by, by the law, they're not supposed to leave until the sun comes up, so they're watching, and they can't wait until they see that first glimmer of light. We were out at the lake house today, and we were there as the sun was coming up, and it's just this glorious sight. The sun comes up, and the lake's there, and it's beautiful. And I, I thought about that this morning as I watched the sun come up. I thought about the, the ladies in, in their place, you know, waiting with all their spices and all, their, their cloths saturated with oil and all the stuff they're going to pack, probably several pounds, I mean several tens of pounds, if not 100 pounds worth of spices and things they were going to take to the tomb that day and, and d- deal with the body of Jesus. And they're watching as the sun comes up. Just a really kind of a cool picture. The women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. And the reason they went to the tomb is because they expected to find the dead body of Jesus in that tomb. Verse 2, they found the stone rolled away, and there's an interesting little Greek word here, uh, the Greek word for from the tomb. When you look at that in original language, it suggests that the, the rock that I described earlier has been lifted up out of its track has been pushed, rolled away, like it's been pushed out into the woods. I've always thought it was close by the, the opening of the, of the tomb, 
And that's, in fact, not the case. It's been pushed away, and it's come to rest. It's outside the tracks. I mean, it's almost like it's been blown off the tracks, okay? And so that's the way they find it. The indication is that it's been rolled out of its trench. Verse 3, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, which is really what they were looking for. It's what this was all about. Because everybody expected to find the dead body of Jesus that it would stay in the tomb. Now listen to the detail about what we're going to get into. There's some really cool detail. Verse 4, while they were wondering about this, they looked inside the empty tomb. The stone's been rolled away from the opening. They're looking inside, and they're wondering. Now here's what they don't wonder. Okay, here's, not what, here's what they don't say out loud. You don't hear anybody say, oh, my goodness, he rose from the dead, just like he said he was going to do. That's not what's going through their mind. It doesn't even seem to cross their mind that Jesus actually had done what he said he was going to do. And they're, they're standing there, and they're loaded down with their oils and their, their spices, and they're all ready to do their deal. And Jesus isn't in there. And they're thinking to themselves, what happened? Mary, are you sure we're at the right place? Now see, one of the things that when you talk to people about the resurrection, people who don't believe in the resurrection, one of the, the things that you'll hear them say is, as a possibility of, of, of how it's not true, is that, the, the, that Mary and the women went in their grief, they, they went and it was dark, and because of their tears and because it was dark, they were at the wrong tomb. Well, we know that they couldn't be there before dark because that would have been in violation of the law. They have to wait for the sun to come up, so they've got light. So that's, you know, they're, no, this is, you know, I mean, how many <laughs> tombs do you think there were around this particular region of the country? Probably not a lot. And so it's not like, well, let's go to the tomb, you know, 20 feet over this way. No, one like that. Mary, are you sure we're at the right place? Verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? And the answer would be, because we thought he was dead. I mean, we're looking for him here because the last time we saw him, they were taking him off a cross, and they were putting him in here. That's where we expected to find him. I mean, Jesus is dead. And they're thinking to themselves, you know, we, we stood there and we watched him die, and we've showed up now to anoint his body and and uh, we've assumed that he was going to remain dead, and, and this is kind of a new development for us. And so these two men look at him, and they say, he is not here. Now he's gonna, these guys are going to explain a little bit about what's happened. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. So Jesus has predicted his own death. But as you read these Gospels, you find something really interesting. And we all do this. And if you've got small children, you've watched them do this. As you've tried to talk to them, they've covered their ears and said things like, I am not listening to you. I don't want to know what you're going to say next. You ever done that? La, 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 la. Can I hear what you're saying? Don't tell me the score of the game. Right? Every time Jesus would talk about his death and resurrection, the disciples would say, we don't want to hear you talk about the death and resurrection. Stop talking like that. They would say, Jesus, cut it out. We don't want to hear about a resurrection. We don't want to hear about your death. That's not going to happen to you. That can't happen to you. 
How can it happen to a guy that comes from God? How can it happen to a guy that walks on water? You can read people's minds, Jesus. Nobody can take you down. We don't want to hear you talk about a death. It's not going to happen to you. We know you. We can see the stuff that you do. We listen to you teach. You're different. Verse 8. Then they remembered his words. So now they've dropped their spices and their oils, and they're thinking to themselves, oh, my goodness. He, he really has raised from the dead. So they do what you would expect them to do. They run back into town, and they run back to their friends, and they run back to the apostles and the followers of Jesus to tell them what they have just found. They have just found this tomb that Jesus' body is supposed to be in, and now it's empty. And you know where they find the apostles? They find the apostles in an upper room, in a locked room, huddled together, scared to death. And here's the thinking behind that. If they killed Jesus and they know we are Jesus' followers, it's likely that we're next. Now let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a group of men who expected Jesus to be raised from the dead? No. These guys are, are in their upper room, and they're just, you know, they're looking at one another, just kind of shaking in their shoes, thinking to themselves, oh, my goodness. I mean, we, what are we going to do? Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. And here's some more detail. Verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Now, if you're making this up, you're writing this story and you're making this up, you want Peter to look like a rock star, right? I mean, Peter, this guy that was just always, you know, he's the one out of the boat when it was time to walk on the water. I mean, Peter was the, he was the dude. He was the one that, that, that his faith was so big. You want him to look really good. I mean, these are the guys we've named our kids after, right? All these guys. We want them to look great. When these women come back and say, he's risen, he's risen, what's their response? Verse 11, but they did not believe the women. Now, that's got to be the first time in history that a woman ever said something. A man said, that ain't right. Are you kidding me? Get out of here. You know why they didn't believe him? Because they didn't expect a resurrection. It wasn't even in their vocabulary. It wasn't even a thought they were having. See, they're thinking, we saw him die. We didn't just see him die. We saw him crucified. We saw him hang him on a cross and set it into place and the excruciating pain that came across his face when that happened. We saw the blood dripping off of him and the sweat and the dirt. We saw people mistreat him verbally. We, we just, we were there. It was awful. And we saw a guy at the end to finish him off and to make sure he was dead, thrust a spear up into his side. We saw all that happen. And we saw him buried. And so the Bible says they did not believe the women because... Their words seemed to them like nonsense. No heroes. No 
great men of faith, no, no great women of faith, people that we would emulate and say, boy, I want to be just like them. You don't see that anywhere in this story. Verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, I love this, wondering what, and to himself what had happened. Even looking at the empty tomb, even seeing the linens laying there the way they were, I mean, the whole thing, it wasn't, you, wouldn't, you didn't find these linens, in, found in, they weren't found in such a way that it would suggest that somebody had come in and in a hurry unwrapped all these linens and thrown them to the side, which is what you would do if you, were, if you weren't going to steal the body and just leave the linens on, which is if I was going to steal the body, which I wouldn't, but if I was, I would take the whole thing and run. But if I was going to unwrap the, the linens off the body, I wouldn't neatly fold everything and put it back into place and, you know, make sure it looks all nice and tidy. No, you'd be ripping it all off and throw it in the corner and let's get this thing and go. Peter, when he looks inside, he finds the, the linens are all, they're, they're, they're neatly placed. It's, it's, it's done in such a way. It does not suggest that somebody took the body of Jesus and ran in a hurry. And Peter's wondering to himself and he says, you know, if this is true, I love this. He sees in the tomb and he walks away and he wonders to himself, man, if, if that tomb is empty and he actually did raise from the dead, then that means that what he said about himself is true. He is the son of God. If he actually rose from the dead, then he, he actually has conquered the grave. And that has... Huge ramifications for me, Peter. If he rose from the dead, then all this talk about me being able to go talk to the Father is true. If, if he rose from the dead, then what he said about his own death, that it would purchase for me forgiveness for my sins, that it would do what the Psalms say would remove my sin as far as the east is from the west, then that all must be true. If he rose from the dead, then he is in fact the unique son of God. And he is the Messiah. And he is the one, the Lamb of God, upon which everything hinges. If he rose from the dead, all that's true. We know from reading on that Peter walked away and becomes convinced that what he has discovered is, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus. And it wasn't a fluke. He didn't go to the wrong tomb. Nobody would stolen the body. There's all kinds of things offered as to what happened to the body of Jesus. Here's a hint for you. Maybe, just maybe, he is the Son of God, and he rose just like he said he was going to. And so Peter leaves, and he says, I think it's true. I think I'm convinced that Jesus actually rose from the, the dead. In fact, he is so convinced of this that uh, a few weeks later, right there in Jerusalem, there is an event in the city that brings everybody out of the restaurants and their houses. This is a real, there's a real flurry of activity in the, in the inner city of Jerusalem. 3,000 people flood the city. There's just people everywhere, and they're all asking the same question. What's going on? What's, you know, what's the big deal? What's, what's happened? And in that moment, this same Peter, 
Peter, who just not years later, or not years earlier, just weeks earlier, has denied Christ three times. Okay, same guy. Now, you've got to ask yourself, track with me for a minute. You've got Peter, who has denied Christ three times. Right before his death, he denies him three times. Then, when Jesus' body is discovered to not be in the tomb by the ladies, they run to tell the guys in the upper room, what is he doing? He's huddled with everybody else, scared to death that he's next. Three or four weeks later, he's going to address this group of people that we're about to talk about. I want you to watch the transformation in Peter. Where was I? This guy that had verse 12, thank you. (laughs) I'm getting there. This guy that had no expectation of a resurrection. This guy who's been caught seemingly completely off guard by the events of what's happened. Turn your Bibles now to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going. He says, give me your attention because I want to talk to you about what's happening. I can answer the question for you about what's happened. Don't miss the transformation of Peter and what we're about to do here. This, This is his conclusion based on peering into the empty tomb. This is the sermon that he preached that day in Jerusalem. Just, again, not years after the resurrection, weeks after the resurrection. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. In other words, you remember him, you saw him, you heard him teach, you saw the miracles, you saw all the things, you saw the same stuff I saw. Okay, this is the guy we're talking about. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Do you hear in Peter a different man? You hear something has changed in Peter. This isn't a guy scared to death anymore. This is a guy pointing his finger in someone else's direction saying, you are responsible for what's happened here. You can almost hear Peter say at the end of this, didn't you? You can almost hear him add that last little bit of condemnation onto the whole thing. See, these are men and women who, who lived in the vicinity of where all this stuff happened. These are men and women who more than likely had passed by and seen Jesus die on the cross. They knew where this tomb was. These are people that in all likelihood had heard Jesus teach. They're not unfamiliar with what's going on. They're very familiar with what's going on. And Peter's pointing a finger and he's saying, you are responsible for this whole thing. And I'm about to tell you what's going on. But God raised him from the dead, verse 24. It's, it's as if Peter's saying, when I looked into that empty tomb, I have come to the conclusion that God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter says, you want to know what I've concluded? Weeks after the event, I've concluded, and I'm willing to stake my life on it, that this man that you gave over to be killed by the Romans has actually raised from the dead. And Peter says, I don't care anymore. I'm going to go public with what I believe, and I believe that he is the Messiah. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe he is the Son of God that was crucified, dead, buried, raised, come back to life. 
He's risen from the dead. In fact, he was sent by God. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we, meaning the disciples and those who had followed, we are all witnesses of the fact. This is important because they don't believe this because someone's convinced them that this is what they're supposed to believe. It's not, it's not, it's not we believe it because we've heard some philosophical argument and have come to the conclusion that, well, it's probably what happened. They believe it because they saw it. You read the story of, of Watergate back in the 70s, and if you read the stuff that Colson has written, who is now a Christian and credits, the, credits Watergate, in fact, for helping to lead him to Christ because he said, as a bunch of politicians, if we could have told the same lie for about three weeks, we could have weathered the whole storm and everybody would have stayed out of jail and we'd have been fine. But when people started to realize that they were going to go to jail, they were not going to go to jail for a lie. And when you understand that these guys, these disciples of Jesus, would die for their faith, they would die for what they believed. They didn't just believe based just because they believed. They believed based on what they saw. They said, we saw him raised from the dead. We talked to him. He appeared to us. You can kill us if you want to, but we know what we saw. This isn't, we've been talked into it. This isn't, well, I think it could be that way. It's like, no, I saw it, and there's no way you're going to convince me of anything else. Have you ever seen something in your life that you thought, if I told anybody else about this, they would not believe it? That's where they are. they're, they're, They're saying, look, you don't have to believe it if you don't want to. We've seen it. We believe it. And you're not changing our mind. That's where Peter is at this moment. And listen to what happens next because Peter, what he says next is either absolutely true or it's blasphemy and they ought to string him up right where he stands. He's either crazy, he's got a death wish, or what he's saying is the truth. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And I think it's possible that at that moment you could hear a pin drop. As he lays out for these people, you have crucified the Son of God. And they've got a decision to make. In this moment, they have got to decide, okay, this guy that's standing in front of us, we've got to decide what we're going to do with him. Because he is. He's either crazy or he's wanting, wanting us to kill him or maybe what he's telling us is the truth. Look at their response. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart. No matter how threatening it was, no matter how much they wanted to resist, they knew that what Peter was saying was absolutely the truth. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? You're right. We're wrong. We have done the wrong thing with Jesus. We, you're right, Peter. We are responsible. Peter replied to them and possibly to you, possibly to someone in the room this morning, what Peter said to them 2,000 years ago could be applied to you possibly today. This is what Peter says that you should do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter had every right to be angry with these people. They had killed his best friend. They had killed his Messiah and Savior. They had killed this person that was so important in his life. 
He says, let me tell you what you need to do. The first thing you need to do is you need to cop to it. You need to say, I am responsible. You need to say, I am wrong. I, I'm, there's, it, it's not right. What's going on with me is not right. We had a guy in the first service come forward, Christian guy, been saved for a long time. He walked up to me and it tears in his eyes, and he said, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And I just want to confess it. So maybe what happens this morning, if you've never given your life to Christ, the first thing that happens is you say, I'm, I'm wrong. I, I'm responsible as much as anybody for the death of Jesus. He died for me as much as he died for, for anybody else in this room. You have to say, I was wrong about Jesus. The second thing you have to do is you have to be baptized. You go public with your decision. See, you never look more like Jesus you are never more fully identified with Jesus than you are when you are baptized. I tell people all the time, you never look more like Jesus than you are when you're baptized because you are dying to your sins. What do you do with a dead person? You bury them. Just like Jesus, you raised and, are, and, are, and walk in the newness of life. He's talking to people who are responsible for killing Jesus, and he says, you have got to go public with this. If you really believe you're responsible, then you've got to do something about it. You repent and you get baptized. And you can almost hear Peter say, because I'm convinced he is who he said he was, and I'm convinced that his death paid for all of our sins. And that's true even of the people in this room. He paid for all of our sins, everyone in this room. Even the sin of delivering someone up to be crucified on a cross Peter says, that can be forgiven. That's the conclusion that Peter came to after peering into an empty tomb. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that day, 3,000 people were added to the, to the church. That day, the church got its start. The church was born that day, and in the weeks and months to follow, thousands and thousands of people would be added to that number. People would be baptized into faith. They would come to faith in Christ, and the church would grow. And we are in this room this morning, some 2,000 years later, because of one single event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's words 2,000 years ago ring true today. Change your mind. Cop to it. Admit that you are wrong. Admit that you are responsible. Yes, Lord, I too am wrong. There are people that are here this morning thinking, man, I cannot seem to get it right. No matter how hard I try, I, I just can't seem to get it right. Well, of course you can't. You know why? Because you're not Jesus. And, and, the, and you're going to try, and you're going to try and live a good life and a sinless life and get it all right. You're not going to get it right. And what you've got to do is you've got to say, I believe in the Holy One sent from God. I believe that he is a perfect lamb, and I believe that he was slain for a lot of other people, but for me too. And I want to admit that I've been wrong. And here's what you've got to understand. This is a personal decision. This is not a national decision. This is not a, a, a family decision. This is a personal decision. You don't say, well, my daddy was a Christian, so I guess that makes me one. No. I'm wrong. I need forgiveness. I need the blood of Christ on my life 
shed for my sins. I need forgiveness, and I want to go public. What a better way to end Easter than to invite people and offer them the opportunity to once and for all deal with the sin in their life. Does it mean you're never going to sin again? No. But does it mean that that sin will condemn you? It means that you are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. I love that. I love that. Am I sinless? Absolutely not. Am I forgiven? Yes. Say it with me. Forgiven. Forgiven. It can be you today. It can be you today. Let's pray together. Father, this glorious day, thank you for this beautiful, glorious day. Thank you for one singular second in history when a dead man came back to life and for everything that means for us, because God, anybody could die. A lot of people died on a cross in the time of Jesus. That was nothing spectacular or new. What is spectacular and new is that a crucified man rose from the dead. And 2,000 years later, we stand here and we tell you that we love you and we thank you for forgiving us from our sins. Father, if there's anybody in the room this morning who's never done that, I pray that today would be the day when we stand and sing. They would come forward and say, I want to go public. I believe this is true. I believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus means my forgiveness. And I want to go public. Father, we love you. We are blown away, amazed, astounded by your love that you would give up Jesus for us. Just We're like Peter. We just walk away and we wonder. So God, thank you. Receive our gift of praise to you in this moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.